Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, now we're going to listen to Women's Health Part 1. It's always important to briefly review the anatomy and physiology of the female reproductive tract. In addition to listening to the description of the external and internal organs and the hormones of the system, you can maximize your learning by adding to that looking at a good picture in a textbook. The external anatomy of the female reproductive system consists of the mons veneris, a fatty pad of tissue which protects the underlying bone, the symphysis pubis, the labia majora and minora, folds of tissue protecting the entrance to the vagina. The clitoris, the erectile organ which is used for sexual stimulation. Glands for mucus lubrication, skeins and bartholins. The perineum which is the muscular tissue between the posterior opening of the vagina and the anus. And the vestibule or open area, oval area consisting of the fourchette and hymen. These lead to the internal organs, the vagina, a muscular tube used for sexual intercourse and also as the birth canal. The uterus, a pear-shaped hollow muscle, walled and held in place by ligaments designed to hold the fetus during pregnancy. The inner lining of the uterus, the endometrium, is shed during the menstrual cycle. The fallopian tubes are the passageways leading from the uterus to the ovaries. The ovaries are the female gonads. They are responsible for ovulation and the production of hormones, especially those which govern the menstrual cycle. The most important hormones are estrogen and progesterone. These are produced in the ovary. The estrogen prepares the uterine lining to receive a fertilized ovum and progesterone prepares the uterine muscle to be quiet or non-contractile during pregnancy. The hormones which ripen the individual egg or follicle in the ovaries and release them are follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone from the anterior pituitary. As you can see, the hormonal interaction is complex and dependent on more than one system. A young woman comes to the physician wanting to know if she is pregnant. How will the diagnosis be made? This most important diagnosis will be made at, on the basis of more than one uh, piece of information. The healthcare provider will be looking for the major signs and symptoms of pregnancy, which fall into three groups, but will probably also run some specific diagnostic tests. The three major groups of signs and symptoms of pregnancy are called subjective or presumptive, objective or probable, and diagnostic or positive. The subjective signs are those which are noticed by the pregnant woman herself and may still have other causes besides pregnancy. They are missing a menstrual period, nausea and vomiting, fatigue, urinary frequency, breast changes, and her feeling of the baby moving, all subjective and still 
might be caused by something else. The objective or probable signs and symptoms the examiner or healthcare provider notices, but these may still have other causes. Changes in the cervix and lower part of the uterus called Goodell's sign and Chadwick's sign are objective signs of pregnancy. An enlarged abdomen, Braxton Hicks contractions, hearing the blood circulating through the uterus, changes in pigmentation, stretch marks on the abdomen, positive pregnancy tests. Finally, the diagnostic or positive changes all come from the fetus itself and are usually seen after the fourth month of pregnancy. These include hearing a fetal heart beat, seeing or palpating fetal movement, or seeing the fetus itself on ultrasound or x-ray. The major diagnostic test which will be done will look for a chemical that is secreted by the pregnancy itself, human chorionic gonadotropin. The people who do these tests look for a specific fraction of that chemical called the beta subunit. And the most accurate test is the radioimmune assay, or RIA. The test takes about an hour and is positive several days after implantation, somewhere in the end of the second week of pregnancy. Pregnancy affects the whole body. What are some of the major physical changes that occur? The major physical changes that occur in pregnancy may lead to minor discomforts in the individual pregnant woman. During the first trimester, it's not unusual to see nausea and vomiting. It's usually advised that the woman avoid any noxious odors and try and have dry crackers as the first thing in the morning before she takes any other food or liquid. In addition, we can recommend small meals and cutting back on any greasy or fried foods. For urinary frequency, just urinate whenever she feels the need. She may also want to cut back on fluids after dinner. Breast tenderness can be uh, addressed by wearing a good supportive bra. An increase in vaginal discharge can be addressed by cotton underpants. Nasal stuffiness should be handled by using a cool vaporizer, not any over-the-counter medications. And tylism or excess salivation can usually be addressed by using an astringent mouthwash or sucking on hard candy. At the end of the first trimester, the uterus is slightly above the symphysis pubis. During the second trimester, and sometimes even into the third trimester, heartburn begins to be a problem. Here we recommend eating small meals rather than larger ones, and again, avoiding fatty or spicy foods. Ankle edema should be handled by increasing foot exercises as you sit and elevating the feet when sitting. No tight clothing should be worn. Varicose veins can be handled by wearing support hose and again elevating the legs as much as possible. Don't cross your legs when you're sitting down. Hemorrhoids can be addressed by avoiding constipation or the application of ice or other topical ointments. Constipation can be handled by increasing your fluid and roughage intake. A backache can be addressed by wearing low heels and utilizing good body mechanics. Leg cramps can also be handled by dorsiflexing the foot or walking. Faintness by moving slowly, especially when moving from sitting to standing. And difficulty breathing, good postures, 
and additional pillows when you sleep. At the end of the second trimester, the uterus is about three finger breaths above the umbilicus, and at the end of the third trimester, just below the bottom edge of the sternum. What about emotional concerns during pregnancy? Everybody has emotional reactions during pregnancy, both the mom and the father-to-be. It depends to some extent on what their developmental stage is, whether they're adolescents or older, uh, and also whether this pregnancy is seen as a condition of wellness, whether it's a crisis condition. During the first trimester, major developmental concerns are that the woman gets a correct diagnosis of pregnancy. She's always going to have some ambivalence when she finds out she's pregnant. But that identification of being pregnant is an important milestone for her. During the second trimester, as she begins to feel the baby move, she begins to fantasize about this baby, what it looks like, what its gender will be, and what she will do with the baby after it's born. And she identifies that she's going to have a baby. That, too, is an important milestone. During the third trimester, she is really feeling awkward. She wants to be out of this pregnancy or finished with it. She has some insomnia. She begins to nest or get ready for the baby. She also begins to worry about going through labor and delivery safely. She knows she's going to be a mother. Fathers may look to the mother for their reaction and model their reaction on their partners. Age and social situation will also influence entire reactions during pregnancy. One of the major concerns throughout this entire time may be how much this baby is going to cost. Help me focus on what the teaching needs are for each trimester. You'll always want to individualize the teaching needs for each client, but we can look at some commonalities. During the first trimester, it's important to give a lot of concrete or factual information to the pregnant woman. I'd review the common discomforts, definitely focusing on the warning signals. I'd also tell them a little bit about what sexual activities could be engaged in, and always emphasize exercise and diet. During the second trimester, I'd move not only into facts, but also talking about the feelings that the woman and her partner may experience. I tell them that we'd be wanting to look at fetal activities and running some fetal tests. I'd review the growth and development of the fetus because that's an important way that the mother begins to identify that she is going to have a baby. During the third trimester, I'd very definitely review the signs and symptoms of labor, teaching the mother about prepared childbirth information according to whether or not she wants to be a participant in the labor in an active way. I'd call this anticipatory guidance, helping her prepare for what's ahead. After the baby is born, certainly self-care and newborn care, emphasizing not only the facts and the psychomotor skills, but the feelings. I'd absolutely emphasize that the mother's feelings about the baby are going to be influenced by sleep deprivation that every new mother experiences. How do you know when something's gone wrong during pregnancy? The pregnant woman 
always has the resources of her health care provider to help her differentiate between some minor discomforts of pregnancy and when something's going radically wrong. But in general, she should watch out for a sudden gush of fluid from the vagina. This may be the possible premature rupture of membranes. Vaginal bleeding during pregnancy always needs to be investigated. Fever at least 101 or greater. Dizziness, blurred vision, double vision, spots before the eyes. Persistent vomiting. Severe headaches which don't go away. Edema, especially of the upper body. If she has epigastric pain, pain in her abdomen, the right side particularly not being able to urinate, painful urination, or if the baby stops moving. What is labor? Labor is defined as the rhythmic contraction and relaxation of the uterine muscles, leading to progressive effacement and dilatation of the cervix, resulting in the expulsion of the products of conception. It involves a relationship between the contractions the size and shape of the pelvis, and the passenger, meaning the size, the position, and the presenting part, as well as the amniotic sac. The process can be uncomfortable, it is time-related, and is really an interrelationship between what are frequently called the five Ps, the passenger, the passageway, the powers, the placenta, and the psyche or the response of the woman in labor. What is the difference between effacement and dilation? Effacement and dilation or dilatation are activities that occur in the cervix during the first stage of labor. Effacement is the thinning and shortening of the cervix where you take up the internal os of the cervical canal onto the lower part of the uterus. The cervix begins labor as long and thick and then telescopes or is pulled back up and over the lower part of the uterus and becomes extremely thin, almost paper-like. Dilation or dilatation is where the cervical os and canal go from zero to 10 centimeters. It opens like a camera lens does. Tell me more about the powers. The powers of labor are the contractions. These are the rhythmic contractions and relaxations of the uterus that we mentioned earlier. When these are measured, we look for three particular parameters. The frequency, the intensity, and the duration. Frequency means the time from the beginning of one contraction to the beginning of the next. If one starts at five after eight, and the next one at 10 after eight, and the next one at quarter after eight, the frequency is every five minutes. The intensity is the strength of each individual contraction. It can be palpated or measured by the intrauterine catheter. The duration is the beginning of one contraction to the end, and the usual range is anywhere from 45 to 90 seconds when labor is really intense. What makes labor begin? 
I wish I could give you a concrete answer there. There are a lot of theories about what causes labor to begin. It isn't as clearly understood as we might like. One of the major theories is called the oxytocin theory, where the uterus becomes increasingly sensitive to oxytocin produced in the posterior pituitary. Another theory says that the decrease in the production of progesterone makes the uterus increasingly irritable. There's another theory called the uterine distension theory, which means that as the uterus maxes out in its size, it becomes irritable and begins to uh, contract. The signs of labor that we look for are lightening or dropping, Braxton Hicks contractions, bloody show, which means that the cervix is beginning to open, membranes rupturing, a sudden burst of energy, weight loss of one to three pounds, a backache, and sometimes just before labor begins, some diarrhea or nausea and vomiting. How can I tell the difference between true and false labor? This is an important thing for the nurse to know so that she can help the client to see. In true labor, the contractions are regular and produce cervical changes. The client will feel them start in the back and going around to the front. Walking usually increases her discomfort. False labor, on the other hand, no matter what the pattern of the contraction, produces no cervical changes. The client usually feels pain in the front, in her lower groin, and walking diminishes the discomfort that she may find accompanying these contractions. What do I need to know about the passenger? There's a lot of information to review about the passenger. The size of the fetal head is going to be one of the major things. The various bones which comprise the fetal head are not completely fused as they are in an adult. They're joined at suture lines. This allows for the overlapping or molding of these bones under the pressures of labor. While the size of the fetal head varies, it is usually the largest part of the body of the fetus. The lie is the relationship of the long axis of the fetus to the long axis of the mother. And it can be longitudinal, which is their most frequently seen lie, or transverse, which only occurs infrequently. Presentation is that part of the fetus which enters the pelvis or passageway first. 97% of the time, it is cephalic. With a vertex presentation, this means the head is completely flexed onto the chest. In a breech presentation, this means that the knees and hips or feet could be presenting first. In a complete breech, this would be the knees with the hips flexed. In a frank breech, the hips are flexed and the knees are straight. And in a footling breech, the feet are coming first, either one or both feet. The shoulder coming first indicates a transverse lie. Attitude is the relation of the fetal parts to one another. This usually is moderate flexion. Difficulty in labor can result if the attitude is not flexion. Position is an important relationship. This is a landmark on the fetus 
two landmarks on the mother's pelvis, usually her front or back and her right or left sides. The landmark on the fetus is frequently the occiput or posterior fontanelle. And so we see ROA means that the occiput of the baby is to the mother's right and her anterior. LOA would be the occiput of the baby to the mother's left and anterior. It's a shorthand way of identifying where the baby is with regard to the mother's pelvis. What is essential to know about the passage? The shape of the passage is important because it's going to have a profound effect on the outcome of the pregnancy. We like to see a woman have what is called a gynecoid shape to her pelvis. This is the best shape for childbearing and the gynecoid is frequently called the female pelvis shape. All diameters are adequate for childbirth. This means side to side and front to back. And about 50% of all women do have the gynecoid shape to their pelvis. The other major shape that we're concerned about is the android or male-shaped pelvis. About 20% of women have this shape and it's just not adequate for a vaginal birth. There's just not enough room in either dimension for that baby to come through. I always get confused about the mechanisms of labor. The mechanisms of labor are defined as the cardinal movements by which the fetal head and body adjust to the passageway. Certain positional changes propelled by the contractions. The first one is descent. The mother's abdominal muscles and the contractions of the uterus and sometimes even the force of the amniotic fluid help straighten the fetal body and propel it through the inlet. The baby comes through the inlet at its widest point side to side. Flexion means as the fetal head descends the mother's soft tissue gives some resistance and push the fetal head down onto its own chest. Internal rotation means that the head usually turns from left to right as it prepares to go under the symphysis pubis. It now is in a front to back orientation. Extension is mean, means that the head passes under the symphysis pubis and the soft tissue opens to allow the occiput, then the brow, and then the face to emerge. This is also frequently called crowning. Restitution means the head goes back to the side-to-side -side orientation and realigns with the shoulders and the back of the fetus. External rotation is when the shoulders go to an anterior-posterior position to pass under the symphysis pubis the head does some further turning. Expulsion means that the anterior shoulder, then the posterior shoulder, then the rest of the body is fully delivered and outside the birth canal of the mother. The baby twists and turns, compelled and propelled by the labor contractions through the allowable space in the birth canal. When the entire body of the baby is outside the body of the mother, the baby is said to have been born.
Miss J is admitted in labor at the end of her first pregnancy. Upon examination, the nurse determines that Miss J has intact membranes and is fully effaced and four centimeters dilated. The baby is in vertex position with the presenting part at negative one station. Miss J asks the nurse if she can get up and walk around. How should the nurse reply? Rupture of membranes without engagement is always a problem. The ischial spines, the narrowest part of the birth canal, are the landmark used for station. If the presenting part is above that landmark, then we say that engagement has not occurred. The major danger is going to be that the cord will prolapse as the fluid from inside the uterus runs out. The patient is at minus one station, which means that she's engaged. She is progressing. The danger is lessened, but not absent. The vertex position is good. That means the baby is probably taking up all the available space in the cervical canal. So prolapse is unlikely, but still a concern. Ambulation at this point is probably safe. But as the patient progresses in labor and contractions increase, she'll probably want to recline in bed or in a chair. And this will also contribute to minimizing the danger of prolapse. It's a real judgment call. How big is this baby? If the baby's small, the danger is greater. Enemas are not given routinely in labor. Their use is controversial. If the fetus is unengaged, enemas are not usually given. If they are given, the patient may get up to expel it in the bathroom if the nurse is in close contact or nearby. Obviously, you'd want to check the fetal heart tones and the frequency, intensity of duration of the contractions after the enema to determine if the enema has done any stimulating of the labor. Do I need to know the stages of labor? Absolutely. Labor is usually divided into three stages. Stage one labor begins with contractions which are usually regular and ends with the full dilatation and effacement of the cervix. It's further subdivided into the latent phase, which is zero to four centimeters. During this phase, the contractions are about every 15 to 30 minutes, lasting 15 to 30 seconds. They are usually mild. During the active phase, the cervix is four to about seven or more centimeters dilated. The contractions are now every three to five minutes, lasting 30 to 60 seconds. They have increased in intensity to moderate. During transition, which is eight to 10 centimeters of dilatation, the contractions are occurring every two to three minutes and last anywhere from 45 to 90 seconds. They are usually strong and intense at this time. Stage two of labor goes from the end of stage one to the birth of the fetus. Contractions are now every one and a half to two minutes and last 60 to 90 seconds. They are strong and the client is pushing with her contractions. Stage three encompasses the birth of the child to that time when the placenta is passed and may last anywhere from five to 30 minutes after the delivery of the baby. Many sources now list a fourth stage for labor 
as the first one to two hours after delivery, when the major responsibility of the healthcare providers are to make sure that the patient doesn't hemorrhage. What nursing care is important in the first stage of labor? During the first stage of labor, it's extremely important for the nurse to establish a good rapport with the laboring mom. She's going to be assessing this woman and collecting a great deal of data, not only about the mother, but also about the baby. Vital signs, including the fetal heart tones, will be extremely important baseline data. And the contraction pattern should also be assessed as early as possible. Some of the things that the nurse will be doing with the woman in this particular uh, part of early labor will be teaching breathing if the mother has already, not already, had that particular information. She'll be giving her oral fluids, frequently ice chips if they're allowed. It will be necessary to orient the woman to her area, whether she'll be allowed out of bed. Encouraging the mom to void every one or two hours and carrying out whatever individual comfort measures the woman needs. During the active phase of stage one labor, things really get interesting. Now the nurse is frequently breathing right along with the patient to help keep her on target. In addition, she continues to collect information about the mom's vital signs, the fetal heart tones, and the contraction patterns. The woman frequently needs a lot of encouragement during this phase of labor. Comfort measures frequently can include medications if they are needed. Back rubs are especially helpful as the baby's pressure internally is against the mom's lower spine. Ice chips can continue to be offered if needed and again, it's important to make sure that the mother empties her bladder at least every one to two hours. During transition, the nurse's skills are really called into play. The mom needs a lot of encouragement and she frequently makes a lot of negative statements during this particular phase. We need to be very helpful in allowing her to rest between contractions, encouraging her to continue to breathe, not push, and carrying out whatever kinds of comfort measures the mother might need. She'll frequently not want you to touch her during this time. Again, collection of vital signs, fetal heart rate, and contraction patterns continues to be important during this transition phase. What should the nurse do when the membranes rupture? When the membranes rupture, the most important activity for the nurse to carry out is to immediately check the fetal heart rate. Make sure that you count it for one full minute. You're watching and listening for variable changes in that fetal heart rate, especially a sharp drop termed bradycardia. Examining the fluid for color, odor, pH, etc. can wait but any changes in the fetal heart rate must be assessed and identified as quickly as possible. You will want to look at the fluid after you ascertain that the fetal heart rate is all right. And yes, you will check it for color, for amount, for odor, and to determine that it has an alkaline pH. You'll also check the fetal heart rate again 
after the next contraction. If they've dropped, you'll do an internal examination to check for a prolapsed cord. Always check the fetal heart tones for one full minute when you are assessing them after the membrane's rupture. What should the nurse do if the cord has prolapsed? This is obviously an important emergency in the progress of the labor. If the cord has prolapsed, it's a good bet that the presenting part is pressing against the vessels in the cord and limiting the amount of blood supply and oxygen to the fetus. The nurse should insert his or her examining fingers into the birth canal and lift or push against the presenting part to maintain the patency of the vessels in the cord. This is a life-saving event for the fetus. While leaving the hand in the birth canal, the other hand should start oxygen and apply it through a face mask to the mother. If the patient can change her position to knee chest or get some pillows under her hips, gravity will also aid in reversing the pressure against the vessels in the cord. When all this happens, an immediate cesarean birth is necessary and the nurse goes to the area for the surgery with his or her hand in the birth canal, maintaining that life-saving pressure against the presenting part. How can I tell when the woman in labor goes into transition, transition stage? Transition stage gives rise to particular behaviors on the part of the laboring woman. She's really tired at this point in her labor, just when these contractions are becoming particularly sharp and close together. She's restless and anxious, and look out for irritability. She doesn't want you to touch her now, even though you've been rubbing her back or palpating her abdomen before this. She may also make statements which feel that she is out of control. She may verbalize fear. She's afraid of being left alone. She's afraid of tearing. The nurse has to encourage and reassure the patient, praise her for getting through each contraction, and it goes without staying to stay with her. Keep the woman informed as to what is going on. Don't touch her if she doesn't want to be touched. Continue to offer her ice chips if they're allowed and attend to any need to avoid. Woman in labor goes to transition, transition stage. What nursing care is appropriate during second stage of labor? During the second stage of labor, the mom is using her abdominal muscles and her diaphragm to assist the uterus in pushing this baby down the birth canal. We can help her with pushing by getting her into the right position, helping her with her breathing, and helping her by encouraging her through each contraction. We'll also want to be checking her vital signs and the baby's heart rate very frequently. Protocols differ in each agency, but they may be after each contraction. Because we're going to be expecting the birth of the baby to mark the end of the second stage, we have to look for the presenting part at the introitus. 
it also means we're going to be examining the mother frequently. We want to make sure that we document that baby's progress down the birth canal. Comfort measures include a cool cloth to the mother's forehead or the back of her neck, offering her ice chips. If the mom has had an epidural, she may not be able to feel these contractions occurring. Because she would be on a monitor as the result of having had the epidural, we would be able to notice the patterns and tell her as these contractions began. We could then assist her with her pushing by telling her when to push and how long to push. When is the mother usually moved to the delivery room? That's going to depend on whether this is the mother's first pregnancy or a later pregnancy. With a woman having her first delivery, we would watch for the bulging of the perineal area, that muscular area between the vagina and the anus. That means that the baby's head is right ready to be born. After the first pregnancy, we would move the mom when she was about seven to eight centimeters dilated because we know that in subsequent labors and deliveries, the second stage or pushing stage of labor frequently is accomplished much more quickly. In the current practice of childbearing, many women labor, deliver, and recover in the same area and are not necessarily moved from a labor room to a delivery room. The nurse still has to watch for the imminent birth of the baby. You want that baby to be born in a prepared atmosphere where everybody is ready for it. Immediately after the baby is born, it, he or she can be placed on the mother's abdomen or under a radiant warmer. In the radiant warmer, it's a modified Trendelenburg position to assist in bringing any mucus or fluids up from the baby's lungs. We would want to dry the baby and if necessary suction the nose and mouth. The APGAR scoring would be done during this period of time at one minute after the birth and again at five minutes after the birth. We would look at the skin color of the newborn, check the cord for three vessels and clamp if the delivering health care provider has not already done so. We would do a quick physical assessment of the newborn, predominantly looking to see whether or not the baby needed resuscitation. We could then also do a brief gestational assessment, looking particularly at ear cartilage and sole creases. We would certainly want to identify the newborn and the mom with bands or footprints and fingerprints before mom and baby were separated. It's also the legal responsibility of the nurse in the delivery area to note the exact time when the baby is born. That is one of the important activities that we would do as our care for the newborn. Review the APGAR scoring system for me, please. The APGAR scoring system is an important assessment device that the nurse uses after she's been with the woman delivering a new child. There are five categories in the APGAR scoring system. Heart rate, respiratory effort, muscle tone, 
reflex irritability, and color. And in each of these categories, the newborn infant can get either a zero, a one, or a two. Let's take heart rate first because that is the most important of the assessments. Heart rate is usually palpated at the cord where it joins the skin in the umbilical area. If there is no heart rate, the baby gets a zero. If it is slow and less than 100, the baby gets a one. If it is greater than 100, the baby gets a two. Respiratory effort is the second most important assessment. If that's absent, a zero. Slow and irregular, a one. And a good cry will yield a two rating in that particular category. Muscle tone means the baby resists straightening of the arms and legs. Flaccidity yields a zero. Some flexion of the extremities, a one. And active motion, a two. Reflex irritability is demonstrated by stroking the baby's spine. If the baby gives you a grimace, it's a one. A vigorous cry is a two. Obviously, no response is a zero. Let me just break in here and tell you that there was quite a bit of information on labor and delivery, but I will say it at the end of uh, Women's Health Part 2. Because labor and delivery was difficult for me. Uh, neonatal care was difficult for me, as I sure, it, as I am sure it's difficult for you. So I will chime in and tell you about it at the end of when women's health or labor and delivery and neonatal care is over. Okay, so just continue to listen to the MP3s. is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VTW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus